Welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's been uh, pretty interesting to uh, to observe, um, and I'll kind of share personally why that is for me. But it's a topic that's been getting a lot of heat, um, and the Christian world, at least, and that's the idea of deconstruction. There's a whole movement on deconstructionism. Um, and so what I wanted to do today is kind of walk through, um, I've got, what, a four-point outline that I kind of typed up before we got on air. Um, I'm going to go over what it is, why it's happening, uh, is there any good in it, and what we should do about it. And so that's going to be kind of the sequence of the episode today. Some various things within deconstruction as kind of a topic are the ex-evangelical movement, um, and really efforts to reform um, in church history. Now, that's a huge topic, but I want to highlight kind of a, a trend I see in this movement. So kind of to start us off with deconstruction, what is it? Well, I think deconstruction in a lot of ways is a movement to uncover hidden things. So it's kind of a, a movement to look at the current cultural edifices of Christianity and deconstruct and take apart and kind of examine what what's informing those different movements, streams, ideas, and people. And so it's a way of kind of dismantling um, kind of in, in an attempt to kind of uh, reform and remodel Christianity um, based on some hidden assumptions. I, I, I get a sense that it's a fairly Gnostic approach, meaning that it approaches Christianity with the assumption that there's some kind of secret hidden knowledge somewhere else by which we can evaluate the truth claims of Christianity. And so there's some kind of uh, other outside source which gives values by which we can then overlay them on top of doctrine and Christianity. And because of those other hidden values, we can see if Christianity really measures up to our modern age. And so I think it's a little Gnostic. Um, a lot of these movements can be fairly Gnostic. It assumes a set of truth principles and values that are external by which we can judge Christianity and current expressions of church to be good or bad. And so in that way, it's kind of like a reform movement. Any reform movement, whether it's a reform movement within a denomination, within a church, or within just kind of Christianity as a whole, reform movements typically try to take what is and make it better. Um, I'm a big fan of that. That's kind of like part of my uh, daily habit of how I view the world. I, I see how the world is, and I'd like to make the world a better place. Now, that can get re real out of hand real quick because I'm just one person uh, with a podcast and with a church and with a family, and so I need to be humble in that. And yet, reform movements, I think the best reform movements, what they do is they look back to reform the present. So they're looking back to history. They're looking back to historic Christianity to inform the present efforts to reform. Okay. Instead, what this movement deconstruction does is it looks to the present to reform the past. So it flips those. And instead of looking to the past of historic Christianity to inform how we should um, do better, how we should better represent the faith in this kind of cultural time, um, instead, it takes the current cultural moment and reads back into Christianity the values and assumptions of our current cultural moment to judge if Christianity is legitimate or not. And I think that that kind of reform movement is doomed to fail from the start. I don't think it's a helpful way to analyze, although it can be interesting to explore from that vantage point. Um, I don't think that's an extremely helpful way to reform uh, Christianity. So, um, that's kind of a basic, what is it? I think that anyone who listens to this that is 
deconstructing their faith or or uh, into deconstructionism or whatever you want to call it. I don't think there would be much. I mean, obviously, I've I've added some analysis on my part, but I think kind of the basic assumption that it's a movement to uncover hidden things about Christianity and to kind of uh, whether put it positively, do some remodeling or put it negatively, do some dismantling of cultural manifestations of Christianity, which are inconsistent with the faith. So I think I don't think that anyone who's trying deconstruction would necessarily disagree with that definition. Um, I also want to talk about why it's happening. So why is deconstructionism happening? Well, it's happening a lot of times because people have a heightened sense of concern about the way things are going in the world. And so it's not only a Christian issue. Um, this is a cultural issue. This is a a, a lack of trust in institutional authority um, that's kind of always been present in our modern age, but particularly it's been heightened after COVID and racial issues in society. And so people are trying to figure out where other people are coming from, what's going on uh, with powers, with principalities, with politics, with all sorts of stuff. And so people are very uh, cynical and suspicious of what is happening in our world. And so for a lot of people, they're trying to examine their priors. They're looking back to the assumptions they've made about the world um, and they're re-examining. A recent guest I had on, uh, Aaron Wren, lays out a framework for kind of examining and analyzing our, uh, our, our times through his kind of positive, neutral, negative world framework. And so that's an example of uh, someone kind of going like, not necessarily deconstructing, but trying to provide a helpful analysis to what is going on. Well, with deconstruction particularly, um, there's a heightened concern with the cultural expressions of Christianity, with how Christianity has kind of like what its reputation is. And so what people from a deconstructionist point of view are typically trying to do is they're trying to look at Christianity in relation to culture and, and how either whether you want to use the word relevant or how it connects or what it speaks to. Um, all those kind of issues. This has been going on for a long time. Um, I think part of if I come across as annoyed with it, if there's annoyance in me, it's because uh, it's not new. And maybe that's because I'm just getting old. And so, uh, you know, it's not that impressive to me in terms of like being something cool. Um, I'm a millennial. And so I grew up during the age where there was emergent and emerging. One of those was like better than the other, I think. Um, and so, there were those kind of issues going on in the church. There have always been people in the church who explore new ideas and get theologically creative. And so to me, like there's this stuff, whether you want to call it deconstruction or emerging or emergent or whatever you want to call it, it it's not really new to me. Um, and so I think a lot of people are maybe latching onto it. I don't really know how many um, are latching onto this as a project because they're just coming out of a context where everyone's fairly suspicious of institutions. So it makes sense that a new effort to kind of like reform or, or look at the priors of Christianity. Um, I think a lot of people, um, if I were to think of it kind of like in my world, uh, they've kind of bought this idea of contextualization um, from a missional bent, whether it's good or other people. And contextualization is, a, is an important kind of uh, reflective discipline in any kind of cultural engagement with Christianity. Um, I think that's a bigger topic than this podcast, but I wanted to highlight a couple things with contextualization. One, um, contextualization is kind of obsessed with disenculturating the gospel. So it's believed that there's a core message or charisma of the gospel that the gospel can be reduced to, and that any kind of cultural manifestations or additions that get piled up on top of the gospel 
uh, can be an impediment to people coming to know Jesus. And so we have to disenculturate. We have to remove the excess from the gospel. And so we have to take off from the gospel in order to go into a new culture. And for more people to know Jesus, we have to take off these cultural manifestations of Christianity in that culture so that it can go into a new culture and those people can hear the core message of the gospel. Um, and this this makes sense because a lot of people right now are concerned about uh, Christianity being captive to kind of cultural Christianity. And um, really, they, they're just trying to figure out how to disenculturate even more. A lot of people um, have, have bought the kind of contextualization approach to mission, kind of hook, line, and sinker. And so now when things happen in our country around race or politics or COVID or whatever it may be, they go, how are, how is mainstream Christianity treating this issue? How is cultural Christianity treating this issue? And they're trying to distance themselves from that in order to reach people who are outside of Christianity. Um, I'm afraid that much of our desire to disenculturate is really just sometimes fueled by kind of a shame of our parents, a shame of what our grandfathers and what they believed, a shame of kind of historic Christianity. Looking back and you can see problems and and things where Christianity uh, in power kind of went off. It doesn't always go off because it's in power, but you can see it with issues related to racism or other issues. You can see kind of uh, historic Christianity doesn't always have a clean slate. I mean, that's the way history works is to look back and expect his history to like be this kind of pure distillation of proper Christianity would be to dehumanize um, Christianity itself and make Christianity some kind of Gnostic enterprise where it's just about the ideas and not about the people. But I think a lot of our desire to disenculturate is fueled by kind of the shame of like either Christian culture that we were raised in or Christian parents or the, or the cultural Christianity that a lot of secular people despise. Um, and so what that kind of does is it fuels the disenculturation fuels uh, deconstruction because it's kind of like it provides the philosophical foundation for people to start to uh, deconstruct their faith. Um, it's really not surprising that people are um, deconstructing when the church has been deinstitutionalizing itself ecclesiologically for generations. I mean, for, for the last 50 years, the church has been obsessed with new methods, new tactics, um, removing crosses, all anything we can do, short of sin, as the saying goes, to, to make the gospel uh, more receptive, uh, more appealing to people, we should do. And so the church, what it's been doing ecclesiologically, um, is it's been trying to deinstitutionalize itself, make church not so much about uh, power or institutions or social capital or buildings. It's been trying to kind of like shed a lot of that stuff. Well, then it makes sense that deconstruction happens because we've been doing that with our own systems and structures for a generation. And so now all the young people in church are simply doing what their leaders have always done, which is say, well, institutionalization is bad. And the way we design church buildings is bad, and we shouldn't put impediments in front of people uh, to find Christ. Therefore, I'm going to do the same thing with my own personal faith. And I'm going to, just as I would dismantle kind of an institution or denomination or strip kind of the church of, of what it's recognizable as a church and its architecture, just as I would do that, I'm going to strip the faith in my own life. 
And so I think a lot of people have been doing that because the church has taught them to do that. Um, deconstruction is also kind of the inevitable outcome of denominationalism as a whole. Um, and that's a, a, a different topic completely. But I think it's important to observe that like the Reformation, the reason the Reformation is beautiful is because there was a recapturing of the gospel. One of the liabilities of the Reformation was denominationalism and kind of this uh, deconstruction, you could say, of of faith. And so throughout the 16th, 17th and on centuries, um, you had kind of a deconstruction of institutionalization, a movement towards congregationalism, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think where you have low ecclesiology, you will find deconstruction. Where you have people who do not value the church, who do not hold the church in high regard, who believe that um, in a Christianity that's very individualized and that faith is very, uh, very much more about me and Jesus, and I don't need that body or that institution or that pastor or the gathering of the saints to have a good relationship with Jesus. I think that just that just is inviting deconstruction to happen. So that's kind of what it is. Why I see it happening? Is there any good? We have to remember that deconstruction isn't new. Um, people often go through periods of questioning and re-examining their priors. Those aren't bad things in themselves. Um, they're very normal things. In general, doing this isn't bad, but the way it's done can result in a lot of harm. Like if you believe that everyone who came before you was a bigot, well, that assumption is going to lead you to some pretty awful conclusions. Um, and so we have to be careful that we're not taking current cultural standards and particularly secular worldly standards and then trying to judge the Bible and Christianity by those standards. Um, this is personal to me because I remember in high school, I went over to one of my friend's house and he was reading Blue Light Jazz. Blue Light Jazz was like all the rage when I was in high school. And then he had Rob Bell with NUMA videos. And those were like super cool to share at youth group and these kind of things. And so you had Rob Bell, Blue Light Jazz, and a lot of other stuff in high school. And these were people that were doing what deconstructionism is doing now. I mean, this is, that's why I'm really not that, I'm, I'm concerned, but really not that much because this is just kind of the normal way that uh, kind of generations play out. Um, in college, I mean, I was trying new expressions of the church. We were uh, trying to meet in parks to do church. I was reading Shane Claiborne, who's uh, his own brand of Christianity. And so this stuff is not... Uh, problematic in and of itself. The idea that we should look at our priors and examine our priors is not problematic in itself. How we do that can be very problematic. And so what should we do? I think this is kind of the last uh, segment. What should we do? I think there's three things that we should probably consider. One, um, we should be ready to answer any questions that we're asked as Christians. Um, that doesn't mean you have to go get a PhD. That doesn't mean you have to be um, well-versed in apologetics, but it does mean you should know your Bible. You should know a bit about church history. And I think we should be, as Christians, eager to defend our faith. Um, we should read solid resources. Uh, I think my concern with a lot of this deconstructionist stuff is there are so many people who have already asked this question. There are so many people who have already been examining their faith for centuries. They've been asking the questions that people are asking today. And yet, for some reason, we want to take modern secular books and use those as kind of like... Uh, the analysis of Christianity. And it's like, man, like there's so many good people that have been asking hard questions of Christianity for generations and the, the pride that would just discard anything that came before us is really unnerving to me. And so I think this is why seminaries can be helpful. I mean, I know at the seminary I went to, uh, Doug Grotice offers an apologetics class for free. You can go ask him the hardest questions you want because he's asked them himself and he's found some solid answers 
um, and he can help you think clearly. And so I think seminary can be really useful for people that are going through a period of deconstruction. To be honest, uh, this is part of the reason I went to seminary. I came out of a period of Blue Like Jazz, Rob Bell, Shane Claiborne, and I was like, look, if what they're saying is true, I should probably like give Christianity the best chance it has of proving some of these things wrong. And boy, did it ever. That's why I went to seminary. That's why I love uh, kind of Christian education so much is because Christian education is about the truth and about, about God's truth because God determines truth. Um, I think the second thing we should do is we shouldn't pander. So we should avoid pandering. Um, you know, I can tell a lot about a church if they're doing a sermon series on deconstruction, if that's like a title of a sermon series they're doing, that tells, um, tells me something. Um, it's one thing to do a sermon series on that because you have a lot of people in your church who are questioning and concerning. You're trying to reach a particular group in your city or your culture. That's one thing. But if they're trying to redeem the word deconstruction, they're just trying to validate it like it's all noble, like it's all good. Um, like you, you should deconstruct your faith. Um, I think they're just asking for trouble. I think you're just asking, um, you're sowing seeds that will reap division. Um, I do not understand why it's so difficult for leaders just to say, I see what you're doing and I see why you're doing it. And I get that, but I need to warn you about some things. It's not that hard. Um, just this week, like Chandler, uh, Matt Chandler sermon from August came out. Um, there's a little clip that came out and he was criticizing, um, the deconstruction kind of approach to Christianity. And he got a lot of smoke for that, but he was right and he, to warn people about it because um, the way it's being done is generally dangerous. It's not, they're not looking to solid resources. They're looking to the world to answer questions that God has already provided answers to in his word and from other Christians uh, throughout church history. And so the way it's being done a lot of times is dangerous. That's why I don't think we should pander to it. We can know what it is and we can understand why people are asking questions. But this idea that we just kind of have to like, bow down and act like everything is good about it. That's a foolish, foolish thing to do. And then thirdly, um, and this kind of is a recapitulation of the first kind of what should we do point is we should welcome the toughest questions and have debates. Um, we should seek the truth. There are some institutions right now in Christianity that are looking at not having debates um, on issues of race or whatever it may be. They're literally saying, we will not debate this issue. And I think that is one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard. And I, I, I know that's pretty blunt, but like that, that couldn't be a worse idea at this time. Christians should be people that seek the truth. Christians should be people that pursue the truth. And debates are a very helpful way, as long as they're not just done to score points or you like what the, you know, the typical conservative kind of trope of own the libs. That's not why debate is done. Um, debate is done to find the truth. In fact, a good debate, you should be able to switch roles and argue the other per person's point of view. And if we as Christians can't model that to the world, boy, we're doing a terrible job. Um, Christians should be willing to have tough, the toughest questions asked of Christianity, of, of worldviews, of issues in our culture and in our world, and we should have robust dialogue about that. We should be willing to fight um, over these ideas. We should be willing to go to the mat. We should be training young people how to debate well, and we should be seeking the truth. We are to be people of God's truth. And the idea that we can just not have debates, I can't, I can't think of a more asinine idea during this time. Debate should be uh, one of the primary things, one of the top five tools in our tool belt. If we're going to be leaders of Christian institutions, it should be one of the top five tools in our tool belts to seek the truth, to discern the truth, and to argue over very 
very uh, flamboyant, dangerous ideas in our culture that are just kind of being accepted by a lot of Christians and institutions. Um, they're just kind of bringing them in and and acting like, yeah, we can just add this on or we can deconstruct and it's just not a big deal. I I, I don't understand. I, I, I truly don't. I, I think it it's comes from a motivation of, well, the world is very heated right now and there's a lot of rhetoric that's div divisive. And so for us to engage in debate would be being like the world. And I'm just like, well, then let's show them how to do it better. We're Christians. Like we believe God's ways are the best ways. And if we are Christian academics and if we are Christian leaders and Christian thinkers and we want to seek the truth, then we should be having open dialogue about issues instead of kind of having these closed room uh, non-debates where we call them hard conversations where someone just has to sit there and listen to one point of view and then accept that as truth. Like that is not how Christians treat each other. Um, that's a bully tactic. And so that's kind of my last point. Um, what should we do in response? We should we should receive and answer the toughest questions that can be thrown at Christianity because there are answers. Um, it's so sad to me when people act like, what? I've never thought about that before. Like, you're not the first person to ever have these questions. There's so many. I, um, John Frame, just go pick up one of his books. Uh, Doug Groteis, go pick up his book on apologetics. Um, any of these guys have, have asked tough questions of Christianity. Go read a solid resource on it. Um, and so really that comes down to the final point, which is like, do people want to believe? Do you want to believe? I wanted to believe. I wanted to believe. And I, I believe that when I got saved when I was eight, I want to believe. I, I resonate so much with the prayer in the New Testament. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Um, and so the question a lot of times comes down to what's the motivation behind it? And I think for a lot of people, they just don't want to believe. And so that's really sad. And we should help them. Uh, believe, and we should call them to belief in Jesus Christ. We should call them to belief in a biblical worldview. Um, and I think that's it, like it is fundamental to what it means to be a pastor and a leader in Christianity. So um, that's kind of the the topic for today: deconstruction, exvangelical. I didn't really mention exvangelical, although I think it's in the title. Um, but they're closely tied together. Exvangelical is typically what people call themselves if they've left evangelicalism, uh, mainly for cultural reasons that Christianity and evangelicalism has become so politicized in our day. And so they're trying to find a new new way to describe themselves. And so they call it exvangelical. So that's, uh, that's the podcast for today. We're going to have some great uh, kind of interviews next week. I'm going to have Andrew Sandlin on next week. I'm hoping to have Michael Foster as well. Trying to get you some content before the Christmas uh, season, at least when this episode is being recorded so that you can have some, uh, some podcasts to take with you on, uh, on the airplane or on the road and maybe even share an episode with a family, uh, family member or friend who, uh, who it might be helpful for them to think about these issues. So, uh, so yeah, thank you guys so much for joining me. I'll see you next time.